from LPM, Louisville Public Media. Support comes from Vision Zero. On foot or behind the wheel, safety is a shared responsibility. And Vision Zero Louisville believes zero roadway fatalities is the only acceptable amount. Their mission is to create safe roads by design, engineering solutions, and education. More information at visionzerolouisville.org. I'm Jonice Franklin. This hour on In Conversation. It's something that's probably on your mind every single day, but some people think it's rude to talk about it at all. Personal finances. How you manage your money, how much you make, and how much you need. Today, we're talking to a panel of experts about money management, budgeting, and financial planning. We'll walk you through how to make changes in your spending, how to tackle debt, and how to plan for the future. And we'll explore how the lessons we learn early in life affect our spending and saving habits later. That's coming up this hour on In Conversation from WFPL and Kentucky Public Radio. Support for LPM Podcasts comes from the Eye Care Institute and Butchertown Clinical Trials, where they strive for diversity, equity, and inclusion within their staff, patients, and clinical trial participants. To learn more, visit butchertown.clinic. Welcome to In Conversation. I'm Jonice Franklin, in for Rick Hallett. This hour, we're breaking the taboo and talking about money. Some of us seem naturally good with our money, and some of us, maybe not so much. A lot of that has to do with what we learned when we were growing up or what we didn't. Not every school teaches financial literacy, and not every family does either. And if you grew up without much money, maybe there wasn't enough to save, so you didn't see what that might look like. We have four guests with us this hour. Alona Lamonta-Volkova has worked in finance on Wall Street and in Silicon Valley. She's a contributing fintech writer for Forbes magazine. Alona was born in Havana, Cuba, and immigrated to the U.S. at age five, then grew up in Louisville. She hosts a podcast called Money Memories. And full disclosure, it's distributed by Louisville Public Media, which WFPL is part of. Alona, thanks for being here today. Dr. Abdul- so much for having me. Great. Dr. Abdullah Albarani joins us from Northern Kentucky University, where he's an associate professor of economics at the Hale College of Business. He's also the director of the Center for Economic Education. His work focuses on improving the quality of financial education and making it more accessible. Dr. Albarani, uh, thank you for being with us. And I can call you Abdullah. Abdul is perfect. Thank you for having me. Great. Thanks for being here. Kara Perez is the founder and CEO of Bravely, an online community aimed at teaching women about wealth building and financial power. Kara found herself underemployed and saddled with student loan debt, and she realized her own lack of financial education was holding her back. But all the financial advice she found seemed to be designed for people who already had a lot of money. She founded Bravely in 2017 to help fill that gap. Kara, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. And Tasha Bishop is the Director of Digital Innovation at Apprizen. That's a nonprofit that works with people one-on-one to help them build financial health. Tasha's work focuses on increasing financial health awareness in our community. Tasha, welcome to In Conversation. Thanks. Excited to be here. Okay, whether you're in control of your finances or you're living on hopes and dreams until payday, we want to hear from you this hour. Have you come up with saving strategies you want to share? Do you need help talking, taking the plunge on creating your first budget? Give us a call, 502-814-TALK. That's 502-814-8255. Or hit us up on Twitter at WFPL News. Okay, I want to learn more about each of your work a little later in the hour. But for now, let's just jump right in. It's the end of February. A lot of people are sorting through their taxes right now, and some people do get a chunk of money at tax time. Now, with the caveat that we're not dispensing individual financial advice here, in general, when you get a windfall like a tax refund, uh, an extra paycheck maybe, what is your philosophy on what to do with that money first? How do you figure it out? Tasha, let's start with you. Yeah, I think um, whenever you have a windfall of money, a great option is to look at your current situation, prioritize some things, um, pay down debt. So 
A lot of times throughout the year, we can really accumulate. Those credit card balances can start to grow. It's a great time to check in there and start to look at that high interest debt, pay that down. It can also be a really great time to start savings. So the pandemic really exposed that a lot of us don't have good emergency savings. And so it's vitally important. And when you have that big windfall, taking some chunk of it, putting it aside to have liquid savings is a really great strategy. Abdullah, what about you? How should people handle maybe a windfall or an extra paycheck? I, I totally agree. I think the first step is to look at your savings and debt, uh, but also be conscious of the macroeconomic uh, activity and what's going on. Right now, we're seeing a lot of uncertainty in the market, a lot of changes, which is really a good opportunity to make uh, changes with respect to your finances. So having cash available, cash is king right now. So that would be my advice is to make sure you're uh, having some liquidity so you could take advantage of some of these changes that are happening in our economy. Carol, what do you think? Uh, you know, if somebody gets a big tax return in general, uh, how would you advise folks to, to use that windfall? I definitely want to echo uh, what has already been said. Definitely a great chance to pay down some high interest debt build some savings. An emergency fund is critical to everyone. I always tell people you have to have an emergency fund before anything else, including paying down debt. But I also want to say it's been a really tough two years. It's been a very difficult two years. If you get a tax refund or you do have an extra paycheck, maybe set aside 50 bucks so you can go to your favorite restaurant or you can take your kid to the batting cages, something that you're going to enjoy. Life is also meant to be lived in the now. And I don't think that with our money, we should always be pushing off for future things. Alona, what about you? Do you think uh, if you get a big tax refund, you ought to focus on, you know, building an emergency fund or saving it, same advice or? Yeah, I think those are really strong guiding principles to follow in general. Um, I will add that I think the natural tendency when you have a windfall like that is to, it's very exciting, right? And you're like, well, how I have this, so how could I multiply to make that grow even faster? Um, and especially in today's environment with Bitcoin, cryptos and NFTs, um, it's there's never been kind of more opportunities or pathways for that. So I think it's also an important time when you do have a windfall to check in kind of with your risk appetite um, and see like, are you someone who's risk averse? Are you risk seeking? Um, and to kind of to kind of check in with how you feel there. Um, because if you start asking your friends, they might start saying like, oh, you got to double down on Ethereum or whatever the latest and greatest might be. But the most important thing, I think, is to really understand your goals, your priorities and your risk appetite and to kind of check in with that and make a plan um, for yourself. Alona Lamontavolkova, I want to stay with you for a second because your podcast is all about people's early memories with money and how that shapes their financial decisions in the future. And I feel like deciding what to do with a windfall is one of those things that might be way different depending on how you grew up. Like um, if this is your only chance to maybe take your kids to Disney World, you might jump on that, even though maybe you really should be paying off a credit card. What kinds of things do you hear from your guests uh, about how they weigh those options? Yeah, I think that's a great perspective that you shared. I had a guest on one of my shows talk about how her father actually took out a payday loan to take her and her siblings to um, a fair. Uh, so, so yeah, so a windfall in that situation can mean a very different thing to many different people. Um, so I think that's why it, while the initial excitement of that windfall definitely comes into play, um, and maybe asking around, you might get different perspectives. You have to kind of honor the integrity of your emotions and the integrity of your interaction with money. Um, and it's okay if for you, like I'm, I'm a very risk averse person. So I would just, I would immediately put it all into like a savings account and never look at it. Even if financial wisdom might say to invest, for example. But um, I think you have to honor where you're coming from at that space. So for you, safety means kind of collecting that money and then deciding later, that's okay. But as long as you're kind of um, understanding where that's coming from, and if, if the opposite is true, or for you, safety might be like spending right away, again, maybe checking in before you you spend that um, and understand like where that where that's coming from, what kind of patterns and habits have been building up that makes you feel that way. Kara Perez, you tell the story on your website about how you felt like you were missing out on some financial education and it was holding you back. Can you talk about that time in your life and what you needed to know but didn't know? 
Absolutely. So I like to say that I had my quarter life crisis at 25, which was literally me breaking down in my 2009 Kia Rio on the highway here in Austin, Texas, and just going, money is ruining my life. So (laughs) um, if you've ever felt that way, you're not alone. And for me, it was a combination of being very low income. I was working in food service and making $15,000 a year, living in a city where I was responsible for all of my own personal costs. I didn't have any family help. And carrying the student loan debt. I think that student loan debt is a very hot topic, especially for younger folks. And if you don't understand how programs like the public student loan forgiveness program works, or if you don't know what a deferment is, it can feel like an all-consuming problem. So that was my approach. I just identified the biggest problem in my life, my student loans, and started frantically Googling to figure out how I could take action on it. And then I identified the second biggest problem, which was low income. And I ultimately worked five different part-time jobs seven days a week to pay off my student loans. That um, yeah, student loans. That's a that's a timely topic uh, for sure that a lot of people are uh, dealing with. And you know, we had that period of time where you know no one had to pay anything, and now it's coming back. I've heard from a lot of friends, a lot of you know, people my age, actually, uh, you know, early forties that are just uh, kind of figuring out how to deal with that right now. So timely indeed. Um, Abdullah Abarani, uh, you actually teach the people who teach people about money. And obviously, it sounds like some people are falling through the cracks. Tell us a little bit about the work you do and some of the challenges you see in getting folks access to good quality financial education. Yeah, thank you. So at the Center for Economic Education, one of the things that we do is train the trainer. We teach educators uh, over the summer on how to teach financial literacy at the K through 12 uh, age group, mo- mostly the high school level. We also have a dual credit course that's financial literacy education for high schoolers so they could earn college credit. The reality of it is uh, twofold. One, resources are limited. This is an unfunded mandate. Our financial literacy education is unfunded. So schools that don't have the resources don't get to teach financial literacy education. We want to narrow that gap. The, the second issue is this is all recent and, you know, these changes happened in two, uh, 2018. This is this year in Kentucky is the first year that the entering first year uh, freshman class has to actually complete a financial literacy program. And I use quotations here because it started off in legislation as a course and then it got diluted to a program. And it's not clear what we mean by a financial literacy program. Is it a one hour course? or uh, uh, you know, 16 weeks of classes. So at the Hale College of Business, we wanted to solve this issue. So we provided our 16 week course and training the educators and our courses are open for educators right now if you're interested in uh, signing up. Um, it is online and synchronous in nature. So you could be from anywhere in the world to take part of that. We're talking about uh, money management today. Uh, breaking the taboo, talking about money. We want to hear from you. We're going to take a quick break in just a bit. In just a bit, but when we come back, we do want to hear from listeners out there. Where are you in your journey with money management? Do you feel like you're in control of your finances, or are you just hoping for the best every month? We want you to give us a call five zero two eight one four talk. That's five zero two eight one four eight two five five. Or you can send us a tweet at WFPL News. What's your general questions about? A tax refund. It's the season. Uh, we know you're working on your taxes and you have questions about your finances. What should you do with that windfall? What are you planning to do with your windfall? Let's hear from you today. I'm Joni Franklin. This is In Conversation from WFPL and Kentucky Public Radio. Back in a minute.
Welcome back to In Conversation. I'm Jonice Franklin in for Rick Hallett. We're talking about personal finance this hour, how we learn about money, and how we can get better at managing it. Our guests this hour are Dr. Abdullah Albarani from Northern Kentucky University. He's an associate professor of economics and the director of the Center for Economic Education. Kara Perez, who founded Bravely, an online community for feminism and finance. Alona Lamonta-Volkova, contributing fintech writer for Forbes and host of the Money Memories podcast, and Tasha Bishop, director of digital innovation at Apprizen, an organization that works with people to improve their financial health. And we want to hear from you. What are your money and budgeting challenges? What tips do you have to share with folks who are trying to get more financially in control? Give us a call, 502-814-TALK. That's 502-814-814. 8255. And we have a, a phone call now. We're going to go to the phones with Carol. Carol in Louisville uh, wants to talk about credit scores. What we get as consumers seems totally different than what banks and car loan places see. Carol, welcome to In Conversation. Hello. Thank you for having me. Hi. What's your question? Hi. Um, so back in uh, several years ago, my husband and I had a rental property Um and it, long story short, it just didn't make sense for us to, we were losing money every month on it. We tried to sell it. Um, at that time, it, it didn't, it wouldn't sell. So, um, so we did a short sale with the bank and that was recommended to us by our realtor. So long story short, um, uh, several years later, when we went to go apply for a loan, um, the person at the bank actually informed us that we had uh, number nine on my husband's credit score, and that meant foreclosure. So every like um, every bank would not give us any money because it's it was reaching as a foreclosure, um, but it wasn't. It was a short sale. So long story short, we were not the only people that Wells Fargo was doing this to, and it went through. Um, went through the courts and, and we settled and everything. But my point is, what what do, what do your experts say on credit scores, social security numbers? They're so outdated, and what the public sees. And when we go, the consumer goes online and does my free credit report or whatever. What those three credit companies are reporting is totally different. What people see at the banks or when you're applying for a loan or whatever. And it's, it's, it's outdated. So it, and how can we protect ourselves um, with credit in, in general? Um, Let's take it yeah, to the I've gone online to all three of those credit companies too. And I've frozen our accounts hmm. so that, you know, a bad person couldn't come and like, you know, um, steal our identity, our identity. But um, what, what do your experts think about that. Let's take it to the panel. Thank you, Carol. Um, all of you are nodding. I can see you all on Zoom. Uh, Tasha, do you, do you want to respond to Carol? Yeah, um, Carol, thanks for the question. I think one thing that a lot of consumers aren't aware of is you have hundreds of credit scores. So um, different entities, banks, lenders, they're going to use different algorithms to determine what your credit score is based on what you're applying for. So a mortgage credit score is going to look different than an auto loan credit score. And that can be really confusing to us as consumers. So when I'm talking to people, what I say is it's great to monitor your credit online. That gives you a good sense of just generally what's happening. It helps you you know, identify if identity theft or fraud is happening but take it with a grain of salt. Generally, what you're seeing is gonna be lower than what the bank is, is showing you. So you just have to take those with a grain of salt. And what you really have to focus on is not the number, but what's in the report. So go through it line by line, look at each of those, we call them trade lines, and make sure each one of them is reporting correctly. That's the best way that you can ensure that your credit is actually reflecting the financial actions you're taking. Carol, thank you so much for calling in to In Conversation. We're going to go to line three with uh, Ken in Louisville. Uh, Ken, you're on In Conversation. What's your question for our panel? Hey, how you doing? Hi. Uh, yeah, I don't have a question so much as a comment. We're more likely to talk about our sexual habits and money, which is really uh, astonishing to me. But I taught my sons from a very early age about this stuff. 
And, uh, you know, when they got older, when they were five or six, I'd show them my commission checks. This is how much I made. This is how much I paid in taxes. And uh, at the age of 20, with no money, um, they started investing with my guy. Now, I tell you, he takes in strays, and he he treats people with $50 the same as he treats with $50 million. And, uh, you know, I send all these young people over to him, and he, he, uh, he's changing their lives and changing their family trees. Oh, wow. Um, so do, do you feel like, uh, Ken, do you feel like that you have ta- you're teaching your kids uh, the right lessons about money? Are they getting it? Uh, oh, yeah, no, they're, they're investing. You know, as a matter of fact, they'd go to a – go to a bar and a restaurant, eat a pizza, and, and his friends would be uh, drinking $10 craft beers, and Ben would stick uh, a couple of Paps Blue Ribbons in his pocket that he paid 40 cents for. And, uh, you know, he says, you know, if you're spending $50 a week on this stuff, think about that. That's $200 a month. That's $2,400 a year. If you invested and sa- saved and invested that, you'd be way ahead of the game. So not only am I helping out the young people, but my sons are actually explaining that to people. I, they came home one night to get in the hot tub. About midnight, I heard them, so I went outside, and Ben was talking about the beauty of compounding interest to a bunch of guys on the porch. <laughs> so anyway, it, it works. I appreciate it. Thanks uh, for calling in, Ken. We appreciate it. Uh, Dr. Abdullah Abarani, what, what should folks uh what do you think people should be teaching their kids at a young age about money? Uh, that, that's a really great question. And just to talk about what, what Ken just mentioned, uh, you know, talking about money is taboo. And what we end up doing is rather than talking about the income that we generate, like you, you, it's a taboo to ask somebody how much money did you make last year? And I don't know why. Uh, from an equity and negotiation perspective, the more we talk about our salaries, the more power we give to the to the employee to negotiate better salaries. But what ends up happening in communities is we end up competing with each other uh, through our spending habits. So that's how we measure somebody's income, and it's a race to the bottom. So the more we talk about it and we talk about the income coming in and making savings uh, and a focus of wealth accumulation and a bragging right – the more likely as a community would we live a better life. So I want to change that equation from talking about the liabilities and seeing the liabilities to focusing on the asset and the equity that we develop. And that's exactly what we try to do with our financial literacy education is how can we teach our students and our educators about their role in the economy? So, you know, when you talk about financial literacy education, there's a lot of uh, curriculum out there that tells you, you know, step one, step two, and following steps. And that's great if you're in a bind and you need to get out of that bind. But what we're looking for are people that are savvy, that could read an ever-changing economy. Our economy is complex, it's changing on a daily basis. And I want to develop critical thinking skills around finances. So that's what our curriculum uh, focuses on. That's what we focus on from a financial literacy education. And conversations at the household level are important. Our research indicates that when how, when individuals are talking about finances at home, whether it's good or bad conversations, right? We can't tell the quality, but people are making better decisions with their own finances after the fact. So we need to talk about finances as often as possible. Tasha Bishop, I want to come back to you. Your organization works directly with people one-on-one, and I'm curious about how the pandemic changed the types of issues your clients are dealing with. We probably, most of us all spent less when we stopped going out as much, but of course, a lot of people lost income. Uh, what what do you think? Yeah, it's been really interesting um, because you have, and I'm sure we've all heard the term, the K-shaped recovery, and we see that with our clients. So we have folks who are financially vulnerable before and now are in an even worse space. So we're dealing with crisis issues now. Which you just said the K-shaped recovery. Can you explain that for people yeah. who don't know what that is? Yeah. So during the pandemic, you had um, the K-shape. So from a from a midpoint, we kind of diverged. People who were in the middle, some of us, because we were spending less, staying home, maybe had access to funds like the stimulus checks didn't necessarily need those because we still had a job. Those folks are doing better off after the pandemic because they were able to invest that money. They were not spending as much. 
On the other hand, you have those who are severely impacted. We were losing jobs. We were, you know, having to spend because we're still going out. Um, so those folks are doing worse after the pandemic. So in this recovery phase, you have people who are, a lot of folks who are in crisis. Um, a lot of that centers around housing issues. So we're talking to a lot of people about, um, you know, how to stay in their home, whether it be um, avoiding eviction or avoiding foreclosure. Um, you know, a lot of people had their payments. They didn't have to make payments over um, a certain period in the, during the pandemic, but now those payments are due. And so how do you, how do you stay in that home? How do you keep that housing security? Um, and then with other folks, they are thinking financial goals. So we're also having a lot of conversations on the other end of, well, now I have, you know, I've done well over the last two years. Now I'm ready to buy a home or buy a car or, you know, create some wealth. And so we're having lots of conversations at both ends of the spectrum. This is In Conversation from WFPL and Kentucky Public Radio. We're talking about finances today. We're going to go back to the phone uh, to Forrest in Lexington. You're on In Conversation. Hello. Thanks for my call. Uh, I saw Lower Dell Radio is coming on. Uh, I can hear you. I remember a study uh, that they did on four-year-olds or five-year-olds where they said uh, – you could have an ice cream cone today, or if you'll wait a week, then we'll give you two ice cream cones. And that actually, they follow those people all through their life. And the ones that at that early age uh, had that mentality and could wait were actually the ones that had banked more money into the bank, uh, you know, for savings. It's those and then, uh, so... And then my other point is kind of talking about the gentleman before me uh, on educating people. Um, when I was in the Army, uh, I bounced a check, and, uh, oh, my God, you know, my captain called me into the office and uh, was like, yeah, anybody that bounces a check, you have to go to uh, class for four hours to learn how to balance a checkbook. And, you know, of course, there's a – little humiliation in that, but I thought, you know, uh, so many people just don't understand, you know, the basics of banking, and just those were my two comments, and my question is, uh, what are the panel, what do they think about, what's my responsibility or moral responsibility about how much of my assets, you know, should I pass on to my children, because so many people you know, pass on money. And I don't think that you really respect it if you don't earn it. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Forrest. We appreciate you calling in. So, panel, I'll take it to you. In general, uh, what should people, what are your recommendations on what people should be thinking about leaving their children? You know, I just made a YouTube video about this, actually, because I am someone who has a long-term partner, and he and I have decided we are not going to have children. But I'm also someone who is building significant financial assets. So the question then is, well, where does this money go? And I'd like to encourage everyone to reconsider their definition of generational wealth and think beyond their immediate family for where those assets may end up. Um, one of my favorite <clears throat> excuse me, stories is that the man who wrote Peter Pan, whose name is now escaping me, J.M. Barry, I believe, left the rights to the Peter Pan um, play to a children's hospital. And so the royalties have been funding that children's hospital for almost 100 years. Um, so to this point of, oh, maybe you don't respect it if you don't earn it, I'm not entirely sure that's 100% true. But I do think so often we think with a very, very narrow definition of who deserves my money. And I would really encourage people to open up that definition if you have assets to pass on. Does anybody else want to weigh in on this, on on leaving your family members or your kids specifically uh, uh, money? Uh, my, my two cents over here is, you know, you get to choose how you spend your money and what you do with it. That's that's a, your personal uh, preferences. Uh, I would encourage, though, if there are people involved, for them to be informed of your preferences, especially if they're forecasting and de uh, developing a budget and a future plan that might involve some of your finances being passed on. That, I think, is uh, the responsible, the moral thing to do. 
Anyone else want to weigh in? <laughs> Hearing none. Uh, it's in conversation from WFPL and Kentucky Public Radio. Let's go back to the phones uh, with Bill from Lexington. Bill, what's your question for our panel? Uh, hello. Um, yes, I'm interested in whether or anyone on the panel knows when the term consumer came into the lexicon. And the reason I'm interested in this is that I think, um, you know, it suggests spending by its, you know, uh, you know, that, that we're consumers. And I think it diminishes humanity. Uh, and it may be one of those things that we're just not aware of, but we throw the term around, uh, you know, I think sometimes thoughtlessly. So if it's, uh, does anyone know when that came about? Because I don't think we've always been consumers. I'm 72 years old, and I think I can remember a time where we weren't, uh, you know, labeled consumers. Does anybody on the panel happen to know the answer yeah. to that? So I don't know the full definition, um, but I do know, yes, I'm seeing one of the other panelists here. Adam Smith, one of the most uh, famous um, economists of all time <clears throat> had this quote, and I actually have it written down here on my desk because <laughs> it's very interesting to me. It's consumption is the sole end and purpose of all production. Um, so it's a Latin based word, I believe, but the, I, so I don't know exactly where consumer comes from, but this idea of us as humans as consumers has been around in economics for about 300 years. I do believe it probably came, my educated guess would be that it came to the forefront of the American financial dialogue in the 80s. The 80s were a wild time, y'all, financially speaking, <laughs> and it really flipped a lot of the way that we do a lot of things, both as individuals and as financial systems. That was an interesting decade. So I encourage you to look into that. Thank you, Bill, for your question. We appreciate it. Um, Kara, you know, you just answered that question uh, for listeners that didn't realize who was speaking there. Do you agree that being called consumers, uh, I'm just curious, you know, encourages people to spend? I do. I absolutely do. It really defines us as people who only consume. I think about post 9-11 when then President George W. Bush encouraged people to spend as a patriotic act. And I think that has really become enmeshed in at least the American identity. Um, you often hear the phrase like, well, it, it, me spending is good for the economy. People will say that as kind of a joke to justify their, their overspending. And when you look at the statistics of how much the average American buys compared to even other um, similar, similarly wealthy nations, it is it is astonishing. So I do think that the word consumer does more harm than good. We're going to take another short break. When we come back, we're going to take more of your questions and we'll spend a little time talking about something a lot of people dread, debt and your credit score. Give us a call 502-814-TALK. That's 502-814-8255. I'm Joni Franklin. You're listening to In Conversation from WFPL and Kentucky Public Radio. Support comes from Vision Zero. On foot or behind the wheel, safety is a shared responsibility. And Vision Zero Louisville believes zero roadway fatalities is the only acceptable amount. Their mission is to create safe roads by design, engineering solutions, and education. More information at visionzerolouisville.org. Welcome back to In Conversation. I'm Joni Franklin, in for Rick Hallett. This hour, we're talking about personal finance and money management with four guests. Our guests this hour are Tasha Bishop, Director of Digital Innovation at Apprizen, an organization that works with people to improve their financial health. Dr. Abdullah Albarani from Northern Kentucky University. He's an Associate Professor of Economics and the Director of the Center for Economic Education. Kara Perez, who founded Bravely, an online community that teaches women about wealth building and financial empowerment. And Alona Lamonta-Volkova, 
contributing writer for Forbes magazine and the creator of the Money Memories podcast. We're taking your questions this hour as well. Give us a call, 502-814-TALK. That's 502-814-8255. Tell us about your challenges and maybe some of your wins when it comes to personal finance. We're going to go back to the phone in a little bit, but I want to talk a little bit about cultural differences because I think that makes a big difference in how we think and talk about money. And I'm guessing you all have thoughts on this. So, for example, in the black community, you know, it's not uncommon for people, you know, when we make enough money, we send some back home to our parents. It's the same in a lot of immigrant families. And if you, quote unquote, make it, you share it with the people um, from where you came from. Uh, But, for example, my girlfriend is white and her dad won't let her pay for his dinner on his birthday because he doesn't like accepting money. He feels like it's a handout. Um, and and it sounds kind of funny as an example, but uh, he, he's angry about it. He, th- he thinks it's like taking a handout from his daughter. Let's start with you, Abdullah, and then anyone else who wants to chime in. How do you see cultural norms affect how people deal with money? Well, uh, as an Arab immigrant, I this resonates with me a lot. And it's also uh, our source of research at the Center for Economic Education. We're trying to see variations, racial, gender, differences, but also social differences that might lead to differences in behavior. The research is clear. I mean, even when it comes to language, the way language treats present versus future tense impacts how your saving behavior. Uh, and often we marginalize the role of, uh, you know, culture and social environment on its impact on financial behavior. And when it comes to financial literacy education, if your education is absent of that, those differences, then it's not going to be effective. And what we see in our research is financial education uh, targeted towards minorities is not as effective as it is for white populations. And, and the question that we're asking right now is why and how could we change that? Uh, just because you provide the financial literacy education does not mean that it's provided with local context uh, in mind. And it's really important for us to think about those differences as we provide education. Alona, uh, do you have thoughts on this as well? Yeah, I do. I think it's a really great point and one that I that is very personal to me. Um, my father is Cuban. My mother is Russian. We immigrated to the U.S. when I was five. Um, and so from a very early age, I started to understand um, and witness the differences in how different cultures um, interact with and treat money. And one of the biggest differences that I've observed is in um, like retirement planning. Um, and I feel like in the US or in American culture, it's very kind of individualistically driven um, versus in the communities that I come from, the expectation is for the children to care for their parents as they get older. Um, and so as I started to, you know, take more control of my finances, that's something I started to think about. And and as I was looking at different literature and resources, it's not really discussed that often. It's more like you plan for your retirement and then you do these drawdowns. But for for a certain subset of the population or for many different groups of people, it's not quite as black and white as that. It's like the expectation is that you will in some way um, contribute or support your, you know, your parents as they get older. And that can really affect the financial equation for yourself as well. So um, I definitely, um, when I was trying to get up to speed on this, I noticed kind of like a la- um, an emptiness in that discourse <laughs> around the, how social cultural factors can affect, you know, financial planning. Does anyone else want to weigh in on cultural differences and, and how it affects um, how we deal with money? Yeah, I am also the daughter of a Latino immigrant. Um, I was born in the United States and my mother is white. And I can just say the difference between my white family and my brown family's finances is fascinating. Um, Not just in terms of how much they have, but in how they view their financial responsibility to each other. Uh, My white family, it's very much so like you're responsible for yourself. And my brown family is much more so like, if I have it and you need it, it's yours. If you have it and I need it, it's mine. (laughs) Um, And I do think that is something We often see pockets of immigrant communities who do things such as like intergenerational living that we don't see in mainstream American, predominantly white communities. It's very much so a like, well, you're 18, you're moving out. Whereas, I mean, I have cousins who are 25 and still living at home um, on my father's side. And I I know that's true of many immigrant communities, not just Latino communities. So I, I also think this idea of money, it's so much more than just like cash exchanging hands between family members. It, it is housing. It is education. It is uh, many, many things. 
You're listening to In Conversation, and we're talking this hour about managing your money. Do you know how to do it? How do you learn? Did you have role models in your family, or did you have to figure it out as an adult? Give us a call, 502-814-8255. That's 502-814-8255. Or send us a tweet at WFPL News. We're going to go back to the phones now. And uh, let's see. Let's go to line one with Jacqueline from Louisville. Uh, You're on In Conversation. What's your question? My question is, what is the difference between a financial planner and I read online that there's something called a fiduciary financial planner who does not want to take all the money you have invested elsewhere and sell you his or her products. And so I'd like to know, do fiduciary uh, financial advisors exist? And if there are any in Louisville, I'd really be interested in finding one. Thank you, Jacqueline. Uh, to our panel, can anyone uh, weigh in on that? Difference between can, a financial planner and a fiduciary planner? I can take a stab at this, and I have some feelings about the term fiduciary. So, oh, please do Jody, share. Stop me if you've heard this one before. <laughs> um, but essentially, I feel that the term fiduciary has been kind of co opted by the financial planning industry as kind of a way to sell their brand a little bit more strongly. Um, but in essence, all financial planners in theory have a fiduciary obligation to their clients. What that means is they're obligated to give you the best possible advice, financial advice that applies to your situation. Um, And regardless of what type of, whether that will increase their commission on certain products or not. Um, So you should, anyone that's a certified financial planner, um, whether they're with the CFP or just have different uh, kind of accreditations, you should see that kind of language written somewhere on their website. Um, I think in terms of your question of how to find you know, some, these people, um, really your, any CFP or any financial planner um, should ha- has a fiduciary obligation to their clients. I would say if they are not exercising the fiduciary obligation, you should, um, you should find someone else. Okay, Jacqueline, thanks so much for calling in to uh, In Conversation. Uh, let's go. Let's stay with the phones, and we're going to go to uh, line three with Jeff in Louisville. Jeff, let's see if we can get him there. Jeff, you're on in conversation. Hi. Good morning. Hi. Um, I have a, a, a call about um, saving for your children and mm-hmm. teaching the lessons. Uh, I have a modest income, and my parents provided well, but they did not teach me the financial habits that I needed. Probably because it's different now. There's no, there's no pension. There's no job for for life. So they probably didn't know the things that needed to be taught to me. Um, so to pass on to my child um, the ability to learn and save at the same time, when she was about five, I started putting twice her weight, twice her age, not her weight, um, her age, a week away into a Universal Trust or Miners Act account. So when she was five, I put in $10 a week, um, which is reasonable. And then as she's grown, she's 10 now. So it's 20 a week I put into this account. And it's grown sizably. Um, and she's learning about compounding. Um, I told her this week it's taken a hit and showed her and talked to her about why. And uh, it's, it's enough that um, it will get her on the habit of continuing on so that when it comes time to be standing on her own, even if she doesn't have a really large income, all she has to do is keep doubling her age every week as a contribution, and she should be able to retire quite comfortably. So that was my plan that I came up with, just to get people to understand compounding interest as early as possible, because she'll get a jump on it by a good 15 years. And that's quite a sizable amount at the end with a pretty small contribution up front. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for your comment. Uh, Kara, did you want to say something? Yes, Jeff, I love this. And as um, someone who comes from a family where we didn't really talk about money, and as someone who was very low income, well into my 20s, took me until 27 to earn more than uh, 22 grand a year. I love that you're doing this for your daughter. This is such a huge help. And when we talk about the idea of generational wealth, what you're doing for your daughter is a form of generational wealth. This is a form not of just literal dollars, but of financial education. So when she does turn 18, you know, and she can open a brokerage account in her own name, she can start investing that way, right? I also want to encourage you when she does turn 15, 16, whatever, and she gets her first job to sit down with her first paycheck and help her understand you should put 10% away here um, and you should, you know, allocate 20% for gas and whatever it is to continue getting to work. 
really helping her understand more of the minutia of how to spend money once it's actually her money. I think that is such a gift that a lot of parents think is, is almost too small to give or it doesn't really matter. But someday she's going to be an adult and she's going to have her own electric bill and gas bill and rent. and She's going to need to balance all these things. And she's going to look back and remember, oh, I did this with my dad. And that's amazing. Jeff, thanks again for calling in. She's 15 or 16, too, but you have to have earned income for that, just as an added. We're talking about finances, money management on In Conversation, 502-814-TALK. That's 502-814-8255. We're going to go back to the phones with Jim in Louisville. Jim, you're on In Conversation. Yes, thanks. Uh, my comment parallels the Pap Spear observation and even your last caller and then it relates to saving, but in particularly in my case, saving for retirement and having studied personal finance informally for years, I've kind of arrived at a mantra that has worked well for my wife and me. Uh, I'm 77, and that is, one, start early. Compounding is your best friend. Uh, two, live below your means, and then pay yourself first with that money that you are allowed by living below your means. That's uh, That's that it. sounds uh, that sounds like good advice. I uh, appreciate you sharing that with us, Jim. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. It's in conversation uh, from WFPL and Kentucky Public Radio. Let's go back to our panel. Okay, let's say that your money strategy has kind of been to hope for the best and put things off uh, if you need to, but you're ready to start being more intentional about managing your bills and your income and doing some financial planning, where do you start? Where do you recommend that people start? And anyone who wants to jump in. I can jump in, Alana, because this was me. <laughs> this is me just uh, a couple of years ago. Um, I have been fortunate to, you know, work in financial services, have, you know, solid, I was always good at living below my means, et cetera. Um, but then one day I was like, I don't think I'm doing enough. I don't think I'm really doing the proper things and um, to really make my money work for me um, and to make sure that I'm planning ahead for the future the way I should be. Um, and I think the easiest way to start um, is to literally start with your pay stub, uh, get a copy of your paycheck, see what how much you're paying in taxes, see how much social security, et cetera, see how much your total net inflows are for the month. Um, so if that if you get paid, twice a month, once a month, whatever that is, that's your baseline. That's your money coming in. And then, so that's on one, like, I don't care if it's on a napkin, on a spreadsheet, a nap, whatever you have to use, that's one side. And on the other side, start writing down all the expenses that you know you have. You know, is it, do you have a student loan um, bill that you, that you know is due every month? Um, you know, your phone bill, electric, rent, uh, food, et cetera. And just start writing down all those expenses um, and see how that tracks um, versus your monthly income. And that sounds so basic, um, but honestly, when I finally did that and sat down and looked at line by line what my expenses were, even looking at my credit card bill, I was like, wow, I'm being really inefficient here. Um, so <laughs> I would just start with um, start with what you have would be my advice. Tasha Bishop, you work directly one on one with people. Do you have any, you know, um, uh, tips for people who, who want to get started on, on being better with money management? I would definitely echo what Alana said. I think that getting engaged. So a lot of us have the tendency to, you know, we can call it the ostrich effect, kind of stick our head in the sand when it comes to our finances. And so the first really powerful step you can take is exposing it all. So opening it all up, laying it all in front of you, um, making that very simple income expenses um, spreadsheet or, or napkin is, is really a great step. And then I would say right after that is to um, start to automate some of your finances. So one of the barriers that we have is when we have to make all these small decisions <clears throat> every day, we get decision fatigue. So anything that we can do to automate, to not have to make decisions every time we get paid, for example, um, that's really going to help us mentally and financially. So um, starting small with maybe automating $10 a paycheck um, into your savings account can be really powerful. It can start to create that habit that's really going to grow. Abdullah Albarani, you wanted to weigh in on this as well? 
Yeah, so I, w- I would actually start with a psychology step before that. Why is this important to you? And a lot of times we go straight into the budgeting and cutting down expenses, but we forget what the reason is that we're starting this process. So having your why is an important thing. And in today's world, and this is the importance of knowing the macro economy, uh, before you start cutting down your expenses, let's start talking about maybe increasing your income. Wages are going up, negotiation abilities on the employee side. This is a really great time to find a new job and a new career where you might not need to have to sacrifice so much because you're going to increase your income. So a lot of times we focus on the debt or the expense side, but we don't focus enough on the income generation side. And in today's world, generating income is easier than ever before and the negotiation power is on your side. So time to find a new job maybe. We've got about a minute and a half. We're going to go back to the phone. I think we can get one more phone call in. Claire, you're on In Conversation. What's your question? Yes, I'd just like to discuss with the panel. Um, you know, some of us are still struggling with our student loan uh, payments, and sadly, uh, you know, we're spending 40 to 50% of our monthly income on student loan repayment. What does the panel advise as far as overcoming these payments as quickly and efficiently as possible? Anybody who wants to jump in on on how ooh. to deal with student loan debt? I ooh, I have such a special place in my heart for student loan debt. Um, and by that, I mean I hate it. So I will tell you my number one hot tip is that student loan debt, uh, the interest compounds daily, which a lot of people don't know. So if you're only making one payment a month, you've given that interest 30 days to accumulate. And that's why when you make a $200 payment, you know, only 75 goes to the actual principal and the rest of it goes to interest. So if you can simply make multiple payments a month, and I don't mean they have to be huge payments. I, when I was paying off my debt, I would make a $30 payment because that's going to act to reset that interest a bit. So it doesn't have those 30 days to accumulate and you will end up paying less in interest, meaning more of your money will go towards the principal, meaning you will pay off that debt faster. Now, I do want to acknowledge student loan debt is a huge issue for 43 million Americans. It's a gigantic issue that we can't budget our way out of. Individuals such as myself, hopefully you, might be able to make headway, might be able to pay it off, but this is a systemic issue. And so I would also encourage people to think bigger picture and perhaps get in touch with their elected officials about it. Thank you so much, Claire. Thank you so much for calling in. We are just about out of time. Thanks so much to our callers and to our guest, Dr. Abdullah Albarani, Associate Professor of Economics and Director of the Center for Economic Education at Northern Kentucky University. Kara Perez, founder and CEO of Bravely, an online community aimed at teaching women about wealth building and financial power. You can find her work at bravelygo.co. Tasha Bishop, Director of Digital Innovation at Apprizen, a nonprofit that helps people build financial health. And Alona Lamonta Volkova, host and producer of Money Memories, a podcast distributed by Louisville Public Media, which WFPL is part of. You can keep up with Alona at bearandthebull.com. I'm Jonice Franklin, in for Rick Hallett. Thanks for listening. Support for LPM Podcasts comes from the Eye Care Institute and Butchertown Clinical Trials, where they strive for diversity, equity, and inclusion within their staff, patients, and clinical trial participants. To learn more, visit butchertown.clinic.